And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm pleased to have Martin Clark back to the program today for the second of a two-part interview. Martin is a retired circuit court judge from Patrick County, Virginia, and is the author of six novels, including Plain Heathen Mischief and The Jezebel Remedy. His newest novel, The Plinko Bounce, is published by Rare Bird Books. And we pick up talking about the prosecutor and the murder case, which is at the center of the novel. I guess another person you had to create from whole cloth was Peter Morley. Oh, yeah. But boy, I would like to think that we all know a Peter Morley, don't we? That is completely made up. He is a self-serving, vainglorious, opportunistic Commonwealth attorney or district attorney in, in your part of the world who is running for office. But I will say this, at the end of the book, for the dynamic to work, he can't be adult. By the end of the book, he's a good prosecutor because he has gifts. He's charismatic. He's good with the jury. He's good with people. He's good with sensing, reading the room, and that's made clear. And once he sort of gets up to speed, he does a really good job because I want people to read this and not know who's going to win and who's going to lose. But I guess a nice way to say he's a bit of a careerist. (laughs) I like opportunists better, but he is a bit of a careerist. And I had an interesting online review. As you you know, I read all my reviews. and That path lies madness. Yeah. (laughs) These are not reviews. These are me views, most of them. And (laughs) somebody wrote and was unhappy because I had, quote, Trump derangement syndrome. And there were some other things there. And, And I suppose that is because of the way I wrote this character, Though I'm not sure why, I, I thought most things were even-handed. And the only political reference in, in the entire book, other than the fact that Peter Morley is running for office, the only comment or barb in the narrative is the line when Andy said he couldn't believe the choices that were available to voters in the last election. I guess that would be, what, 2020? And he says, we have a choice between Caligula and Mr. Magoo. <laughs> and that seems even-handed to me. And I think if you, if you check polls today, about 75% of the people out there would say, that's kind of true. We, we wish we had other choices. So I'm not real sure if that was prompted by Peter Morley, uh, if that was prompted by that lie. I'm not real sure. Nowadays, it seems if you make a reference toward decency and integrity, it's viewed as an attack on Trump just out of hand. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, maybe calling him Caligula was not the best choice in the world. I don't know. But this reviewer, this me viewer was really unhappy. And guess what? Guess what, Stephen? What? He's not going to buy any more of my books. Oh, goodness. You, you can go online and see this with your own Damn. eyes. He's not going to buy any more of my books. I'm going to have to come over and give you a hug. <laughs> yeah. You know, what did he say? You go woke, you go broke. It's so ironic as I work with people in Los Angeles, and at the end of the book, there is a scene and I'm trying to not give a whole lot away, but there's a scene when Damien Bullen is on Andy's porch. And Andy lives in Southside, Virginia, and like almost everyone in law enforcement or lawyers, he has a pistol. And when he sees Damien Bullen's for self-defense, he takes the pistol from his vehicle, doesn't point it, discovers what's happening, handles the situation, and there's no gunplay or anything like that. I know that some people would be deeply offended because he had a gun. Then I asked sort of my firearms expert, one of the retired police officers who does, what do they call it now, celebrity protection, personal protection, whatever. I said, how would you handle this if you had the gun out and you saw this intruder, dangerous intruder, but you didn't need the gun? I said, you certainly couldn't just drop it or put it on the arm of the chair. And certainly you don't want to put it in your, your waistband. So 
what would you do? And, and his response was, why would you be putting the gun down? I'd shoot the SOB. And so you have that tension. I like to think that I've struck a pretty good political and issues balance. It just would never occur to me that somebody would read the book. And there was also a COVID mention in that review and, and to suggest that I have Trump derangement syndrome. Well, just wait till you hear from the Caligula fans out there. <laughs> a movie. Did you know that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Did you a, know that? Notoriously, Bob Guccione of Penthouse yes. did the movie. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Helen Mirren and Peter O'Toole, I think, were in it. I didn't remember Helen Mirren, but I do remember Peter O'Toole. Caligula, being a classics major, was, was Little Boot. I think that was his nickname. I'm not sure why he was Little Boot. I often wondered how that would play in the um, sort of X-rated <laughs> version that Bob Guccione gave us. And we've just read about that, by the way. I'm sorry, you were getting ready to say something that wasn't about... Yeah, I was going to talk about your book a little bit more, but... <laughs> in addition to his complications in his professional life, Andy has some not traditional situations in his personal life. He has a son, Noah, and his relationship with Noah's mom, Brooke, is not your average romantic relationship and how things played out. No, they were never married, and they have the son... And it was important to me. I was a JNDR, a juvenile and domestic relations judge, for three years. And in circuit court, I still heard custody cases and support cases and domestic cases. And it was important for me to write these two characters as good people. And one of the ways you can show that they're good people is how they cooperate to jointly parent their son. But you can't make it too perfect or it's unbelievable. And that was a little bit of a tight wire to navigate. So they have the same problems that I think any couple sharing a child will have. But long term, they're both good folks, and they're doing the very best they can for Noah. Their whole situation is complicated because it's 2020, and you're right in the middle of the pandemic. They were never married, an unexpected pregnancy. They chose to have Noah, and they're both good and dedicated parents. Now, there's usually one time per book I go, what were you thinking? Oh, here we go. And mine was... How, how far are we into it? Do you, do you have a... Well, let's say, we, you know, and was, so you've lulled me to sleep. I felt comfortable. I felt... 40 minutes I felt, into the conversation. Yeah, I felt I was doing well. And here we go. So during closing arguments, yeah. Noah's mom, Brooke, brings eight-year-old Noah yeah. into the closing arguments of a violent murder trial. Oh, I never... You're the only person who's ever mentioned that. He's not... I don't I think... Mean, he, he's not going to dial into exactly what it's about. He's going to be transfixed by watching his dad stand in front of a courtroom. I hope they left before Morley started his description <laughs> of the murder. I, well, I don't, I don't know. I hadn't thought about that, but I don't think that it would... You're so proud of your dad. Isn't it like watching some things you see on TV as a child? They just don't imprint. You just want your dad. You see your dad in front of all these people. You see the television camera. You see the still cameras. It's a big deal. And you just want your dad to win. Do you and the the closing arguments are not graphic in terms of like describing, you know, you're not going to be waving the pictures around or anything like that. I don't think that if you if you did, he couldn't see him from the gallery. But I hadn't thought about that. It seems like Morley would want to kind of emphasize the brutality of the crime. In fact, you know, I, I think that. Stella, the assistant Commonwealth attorney, did mention, you know, the, the throat being cut, that sort of thing, and probably would illustrate that with a picture. But you wouldn't be able to see it, at least from, the, from there. But I never thought of that because as a child, my dad was a Commonwealth attorney. And as a child, I've been to court, and you sort of separate out the subject matter from your parent. And you're just rooting for him, and you're just, as I said, transfixed by seeing your parent operate in court and be the center of attention. 
you just are proud and and, and you want him to win. But I, I hadn't I hadn't really thought about that. Oh, uh, man, I was going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> maybe so, I'm a big so, wimp, or maybe you're a sociopath. I don't yeah, know. I was going to say, so maybe now now I'm, I'm waiting for the call from social services when I get back to Virginia. Thanks so much, Stephen. Since he's out the door, he has decided that it might be the right time to say to uh, Kelly Allison, I like you. He has a, a girlfriend, an office romance. They have an interesting dynamic. She is a latecomer to the law. She is very talented, and in fact, I think, a number of the characters say she's more talented. She has more innate skill in terms of lawyering than perhaps than he does. So now that he's leaving out the door, as you said, he's able to ask her out and they begin a romance. Because what book doesn't need a good romance? Is she named after Donnie Allison? No, <laughs> nor Bobby, nor any of the Alabama gang. I'll go toe-to-toe with you on stock car racing. Well, I I know you're a big fan of the the, the Wood Brothers. That's right. So what's the EDR rule? Oh, it's the El Dorado rule. And I'm not sure that I can distill that down. I think in one of our emails today, and I think I've already used the term once in our interview, but I don't want to sound particularly vainglorious about this, but that whole section where Lynn Dillon Haley, the lawyers are meeting, and she describes the El Dorado rule, that's one of the— my favorite things that I've ever written. It's meant to be fun to read. It's meant to be sort of timely, and it's meant to be true, and it is true. And I have seen the El Dorado rule work in court. I'm not doing the rule justice to just sort of give you the the skim version of, of what it is, but it's basically the idea that jurors and people, we now always look for the serpent. We always look for the, the complicated underlying trick. Nothing is ever as it seems. And when you give a jury and people a number of variables, the variables that are in this case, it makes it really, really difficult because immediately, and it says, we've seen the fire festivals, we've seen Lee Harvey Oswald, we've seen the conspiracy theories, and it's just ingrained. And nobody looks for the easy truth, even when it is easy and even when it is true. We want to get to what's really going on. We want to do our own research online. And that's a real shoddy job of my telling you what the El Dorado rule is. And when I tell you that, it, it, there's no connective whatsoever to Cadillacs, but that's the EDR rule. You overlook the simple for the complex. Not only do you overlook it, you hunt it down. You, you just, you're just got, you know, something going on here. This is too easy. This is just too easy. And I think it's partly cultural. It's partly given the cacophony that we live in. And, and, and we have seen enough reversals, and we've experienced enough disappointments that it's just sort of part of the way we see the world. That is something that I just made up. If you go to Patrick County Circuit Court, you're not going to hear people reciting the EDR rule. But don't you think that's partially y'all's fault of being thriller writers, and you've got to have these twists and everything? Yeah, that is true. I'm glad you said that, a segue for me to soapbox a while to monopolize our interview. The trick for this book for me was... That's the template, and it's been my template, and that's what we do. To use Bernie Mac's expression, legal thrillers and courtroom thrillers usually have some trickeration. You have a corrupt judge. You have a Commonwealth attorney on the take. You have a juror who's being blackmailed or leveraged by some unknown, terrible secret. You have a brooding corporation behind the scenes pulling the strings. But I thought that it would be really interesting and really compelling, especially in fiction, to write a legal thriller where everything happens as it should. In other words, you have a 
honest and competent Commonwealth attorney, in the end you do, who presents a good case. You have a dedicated and skilled defense attorney, the public defender in this case, Andy. You have a great judge, Judge Leventis in this case, and she is spectacular. And you have jurors who are good people determined to do the right thing. And you try the case, but because of sort of the straitjacket of the law, the constraints of the Constitution, the jury doesn't get the full picture of the case, and you risk getting an outcome that does not track the objective truth. And so that's basically what the Plinko balance is about, the system working as it should, but not necessarily delivering justice. But should the system working as it does be as it should? Yeah, I think so. There's a lot of sentiment, certainly in my community and I think in the world today. And I think basically because of what we see and what we know of the court system, and some of it we bring on ourselves, but there's a feeling that most of the time, or a lot of the time, we get it wrong. The case that I just described and the sort of case that I write about in the Plinko Bounce is an aberration. It's a unicorn. I guess it should never happen at all. But in almost three decades, I had two Plinko Bounce cases in my career. One was pretty high stakes. The other was a jury trial about stealing some weed eaters in a chainsaw. <laughs> but I think the system works pretty well, and we generally get where we need to go. And it's interesting to me that so many of the cases that are controversial and the cases that people are unhappy about, you get the finger wagging and the talking heads appearing every half an hour on on television. Those are jury trials. So you're unhappy. Don't blame the system. Walk down the street and tell your neighbor he or she didn't know what she was doing because a lot of those are jury trials. It's not as if there's a star chamber and a judge and everything is sort of done behind velvet curtains. These are jury trials, and so many of those verdicts come from juries. How many trials even make it to jury. I that's mean, the point. So many things it? are pled out, aren't they? You're exactly right. And that's why I, I refer to it as sort of a, a routine, run-of-the-mill, turn-the-crank legal system, because so many cases are, are pled out because the defendant has confessed or because... The, think of the world we live in with all the surveillance, with, with video, with security. It's like, yeah, you can believe me or you can believe your lying eyes. That's pretty much the defense you have. DNA. So, so many cases are pled out And I think my last year of judge work, maybe I had three jury trials. One was a civil trial, maybe two criminal cases. So not many, not many. Most people are objectively guilty, and they're found guilty. There are people who aren't, and those are the cases that wind up tried. And most of the time, especially where I live, our jurors are skeptical of the government. They're skeptical of the court. They're skeptical of the commonwealth, and they are hard to convince. And that's the way it should be. That's what reasonable doubt means. And that's a good thing. But by gosh, once they're convinced, you don't want them sentencing you. They will light you up. One of the mentors in the book had mentioned it's better to let 10 guilty men go free than to convict one innocent. And I think that kind of describes the difference between maybe the political parties in America right now is that (laughs) there's that attitude on one side. On the other side, it's better to execute 10 innocent people than to let one guilty go free. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure I want to. (laughs) I'm not sure. I have two issues if you want to talk politics and and courts. I have two issues. In Virginia, and this is a good rule, I quit really early. I quit when I was 58 because I like writing books and I was able to do that. But in Virginia, when you're 71 or 72, you must quit. That includes our Supreme Court, our district courts, everybody. That's a good rule. I think it's the year you turn 72, mandatory retirement. That 
needs to be everywhere. That needs to be on our United States Supreme Court. It needs to be in Congress. And the other thing is that judges need real and enforceable ethical rules. And our United States Supreme Court does not have them. And that is wrong, flat out wrong and just arrogant. The sum of the stuff, this is across the spectrum, that our United States Supreme Court judges have done. Some of their missteps as a circuit court judge and a small backwater in Virginia, I would be marched out of the courthouse by 2 o'clock. The idea that they don't have to file accurate disclosures, they're hearing cases with no disclosure to the lawyers that you're hearing cases that you have an interest or maybe your wife has an interest in, of course, never talk to you about. That's just wrong. That's just so fundamentally wrong. I couldn't do it. It's just wrong. So those are the two issues I have with our court system and our political system as it intersects with our court system is age. And maybe you could cure that with term limits. And the lack of our Supreme Court having any kind of meaningful, what we call canons of ethics. Back in the day, a Memphis man, Abe Fortas, was hounded off the Supreme Court for one-tenth of what has been done. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Talk about just a belligerent arrogance about the the whole thing. And and then occasionally Justice Roberts will will give us some sort of warmed-over anodyne nonsense about oh, we, we're doing this and we're working on and, – and it's just, just log rolling and delay. I understand they're a separate branch of government, but so am I in Virginia. We're the judicial branch, but we have real guidelines. We have a real committee, a judicial inquiry committee, ironically called the jerk committee that supervises what we do. They can remove us, and we have a legislative sort of oversight. Why shouldn't that be the federal model? And see, what's happened – it brings us back to what you were saying. Confidence has just eroded and dropped in the Supreme Court, and now they're just seen as a mini-legislature. Every time you read a newspaper article, it will talk about federal district court judge Martin Clark, and then in parens, who was appointed by. You never used to see that. It's seen as politicized, and I believe a lot of that just bleeds in from the Supreme Court doing sort of whatever it wants to in terms of the way it hears cases. My soapbox. There you go. With the Supreme Court and the presidency, you mentioned in the substitution order that your trick on the substitution order is because there's so few guardrails around certain processes in the legal system that the manipulation of that substitution order was a key point in the book. And that for the president and the Supreme Court, there have been kind of this higher minded, the way we comport ourselves in a certain way. And there were no official regulations and laws that did it. It's just this is the way we do things. And then when people stop doing things right. the way we do things, there's yeah. no legal remedy for that. Yeah. And that is across the aisle. And it's, and it's very disappointing because we see the flashpoint cases and the high profile cases coming out of the Supreme Court. But day to day, a lot of the work they do, they, they agree there's not a lot of dispute. There's not a lot of debate. The law makes sense. I mean, why is it that if you're one of our justices and you have to know that your wife has been deeply involved in the political end of a case or cases that you're about to hear, why would you insist on hearing that case? Let your brothers and sisters on the bench hear it. There are plenty of them there. Let them do it and recuse yourself. Why would you insist on that? And then to make it worse, 
So there's one basically dissenting vote, and I think it's pronounced Mazur's, Mazur's, the, the Trump case about the tax documents. And it seemed like really easy constitutional law. And, and if, if you read that opinion, you know, there's you start with John Marshall and Justice Marshall, and, and, and it seems like very straightforward law. But there's one dissent. Guess who that dissenter is? It's, it's Justice Thomas. And his dissent, when I read it at the time, struck me as just nonsensical and fanciful. His dissent in that case suggested that, yeah, we, we understand that the president is not above the law, and we understand that, <laughs> that Congress has oversight and the people as a body, we have oversight of the president. But Justice Marshall also said that that has to be exercised and applied during the term of office such that it would not in any way interfere with the president's ability to discharge his duties. And I think that what we need to do is to remand the case, and let's have a hearing on that. Think about that. I'm just going to gum this up because we haven't had a hearing to determine whether or not releasing a a separate company, an accounting firm, can release the president's documents. This is a president who's playing golf every day. And that was his rationale. And when I read it, I just said, he's dumb. Now, I don't know, maybe he is dumb, or maybe that was calculated. So who knows? That's why you have guidelines. I mean, there's the old saying, don't attribute to malice what you can attribute to stupidity. <laughs> <laughs> that can be explained by stupidity. But I think, I think uh, we'll not put a value judgment on it, but that he has a point of view on the world, and he seems intent on making that point of view without any legal justifications for it. Well, I don't care that you have a point of view. You just don't need to inject that point of view in a case where it's clearly you can be perceived as having an interest, uh, you know, a conflict. And that's my issue. Uh, you know, the, everybody has points of view. Every judge does. Just we need a clean slate, and we don't need to have the discussion that you and I are having. We need to. We don't need to be deciding, was this really a bad decision because he didn't understand the law, or was this a really bad decision because he is corrupt? And if you recuse yourself, we don't have that conversation. That's my point. Oh, that's why the, we have the EDR rule now. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Maybe that'll make it to the Supreme Court and, and end up in a footnote somewhere. That's my hope. You mentioned the reader who didn't appreciate the mention of COVID. Yeah. The book starts off in 2020 and COVID's there, but it doesn't overwhelm the story. And even at one point I was going, you know, it's there. You know, I guess, you know, you said it in a particular place in time, it's going to be there, but it didn't feel kind of vital to what was going on. And then Peter Morley put on his flag mask, and I went, okay, that's why it's there. Well, no, the, I mean— there, It was there, instructive there, to character. <laughs> yeah. My friend Kelly Justice, who, who runs Fountain Books in Richmond, Virginia, talked about it, and she read—she was an early reader, and she read it, and she said, I'm really glad that you said it in pandemic because things happened then, and, and people have shied away from that because it's after the fact. It's very polarizing, and, and it's sort of glossed over and stylized how we talk about it. But the reason I wanted to do it— and said it then is because how weird and strange and atmospheric it made the courtroom. I spent a lot of, not a lot of time, but a fair amount of time trying to describe, I don't remember if it was the hearing or the jury trial. It was the jury trial. How, and this was true, you walk into a courtroom and everything is different and changed and backward and you smell bleach and people are wearing masks and you can't see faces. And it just really sort of, literally reconfigured how we saw and how we did things during the pandemic. And that, I hope, sort of undergirds the whole sense of how 
strange and difficult this case is and how odd that it's set in in a time when the law and and, and the courtroom, they look like they will never look again. And that was the real reason that I, I could, I guess I could have written it before and I could have written it after. But I thought that really, if you were in a courtroom during that time, it was so different. And everything, as in this case, was kind of backward. I was surprised you didn't have any characters fussing about having to wear a mask. Again, that's not my gig. I'm here to tell a story and have a good time with maybe just a nudge and an elbow occasionally. We have people fussing and doing bad things. And people certainly did fuss about wearing masks. But think about how weird that is in court. You're sitting there in court, and so much of what we do is, in a sense, indirect. As a judge, a lot of times I'm not watching. I'm listening to a witness. But when a witness delivers something that's really salient or maybe a surprise, I'm watching the defendant because I want to see his or her reaction. You couldn't do that because everybody's covered up. You can't, as a lawyer, evaluate your jurors because their faces are covered. It was working in a weird, haunted vacuum. And that's, I hope, really surrounds the story that I wrote. You mentioned you don't know if you're going to write another book. What's this all about? Well, you know, I'm, I'm 64. I'd always hoped to write one, and I have six now, and I'm happy about that. So the next one to be out, as we discussed earlier, I'm no quicker. So we're talking four or five years down the line, you know, three or four years. And so I would be 68. It's great that I'm working with people who challenge me, who are smart and who are eager. And that has really helped. But my writing mentor was Tom Wolf. Anything that Tom Wolf wrote is better 100 times than anything I've ever written. And you think about who he was. Every day he drew breath. Tom Wolfe was the hippest man on the planet. He was a great writer. Everybody says, oh, new journalism, new journalism. That's just sort of knockoff reporting. So then he writes Bonfire of the Vanities. I'll show you. I can write fiction. So he was, I think, every day he lived was the greatest writer of my generation. But when Mr. Wolfe was older, I was so excited to read his final book, which was I Am Charlotte Simmons. And it was good, but he... He missed his marks. It was an older man writing about, you know, college and and that kind of thing. And nobody wants to be Willie Mays in a Mets uniform dropping fly balls. Nobody wants to be Joe Namath standing on the sidelines in a Rams uniform. You don't want to stay past the time you're good at something. And I always have about a a, a six-month lull to travel and enjoy hanging out with you and, and sort of celebrate getting a book published. And then I go back to work, and, and I will, but we'll see at the end of that time if I've written something that's good. It's just harder. We lose our edge when the Social Security check starts coming, I think, when your conversations are about Medicare and not what bourbon am I going to drink tonight. So I hope to have one more book. Why don't you make it about a person who adopts a dog and is not a good person? <laughs> so let's get this down. Can I make you a villain? Can you be a villain? Yeah, if you want okay. to put me as a villain, it's it's a free country. Well, there, you know— <laughs> We had, we there's, had a, there's a guy who was like a vice president for um, American Airlines who shares my name. Uh-oh. So, uh-oh. Watch I out. feel a lawsuit coming. Yeah. Well, there was a Ted Utley in this one. That's, that's warm. I did see Utley in there, and, and my eye is drawn to those letters at the end of the word. Then I go, whoa, what? <laughs> so I've gotten close, but yeah, I'll, um, we'll work you in there as a villain or a throwaway. A lot of my, my law school classmates are throwaway little cameos. I, I think just someone who's like annoying. No, just no, no. needlessly antagonistic. 
I'm trying to think. Maybe you would be you, – you know the villain you would be? You would be somebody from the wild, wild west. You'd be a, a, a bigger version of Dr. Miguelita Loveless. That's who you would be. I mean just smart, clever, funny. Yeah, that, that, I think that's what I'll do. Martin, it's always a pleasure. Oh, well, thanks for having me back, and I hope I see you again in four years, and it's, it's just a joy to hang out with you and talk for an hour. Martin Clark is the author of the novel The Plinko Bounce, which is published by Rare Bird Books. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the city of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.